Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Glad you're here for another great show. I'm, I'm excited about this. We've got a good friend named Frank Cava on the show that we're going to interview. And he's actually in kind of in Alex's neck of the woods. But um, we're going to be talking about some cool things with regards to hard money and uh, getting your elevator speech down because I think that's super important. And a lot of people, <clears throat> when you talk to other investors or sellers or buyers, even family, you, you kind of get tongue-tied or you – how you uh, present yourself is so important in this business. But Alex, you're on the line. How are you, man? I'm doing wonderful. Spectacular. How about yourself? Really good. You know, as usual, um, we get on this call and uh, Alex is eating something healthy. <laughs> and and I just got back from a Subway sandwich place. I am proud to announce that I did not get any French fries because this place has one of those where they cut the fries actually right there. Oh. And then they fry them and they put a ton of salt on them and they're really good. I did not get any and I didn't get any soda either. I had water, ice water. But you ate the bread, didn't you? I ate the bread. Oh, <laughs> but it had lots of vegetables man. on it, you know? It had oh. lettuce and, and <laughs> onions and tomatoes and yellow peppers and okay. some salami and pepperoni and all that. Okay. All right. Jeez. So anyway, um, Alex, you've been busy doing deals, I, I very assume. Busy, right? Very busy. Yeah, yeah. We just um, actually closed on one in uh, my Richmond market uh, the other day. So we just got got the wire from the from the bank on that. So that was nice. And uh, I think a bunch of other stuff going on. I was just running around looking at some of my new construction projects uh Today, trying to get people on a timeline and the right schedule and all that stuff, needing a little extra good kick in the pants to get things to the finish line, which they need every now and then, you know? Right on. I actually also just dropped like 10,000 postcards uh, in one of my markets. So we've been going through all those. My virtual assistants are very busy right now. <laughs> what, um, what postcard do you use? You use the old-fashioned one that you've always used in the past? Yeah, I kind of mix it up between that. Um, I kind of take different ideas from different people and kind of blend it into my own postcard, actually. <laughs> okay, right on. So you have uh, 10,000 postcards. I mean, you should get at least, how many calls with that? 150, 200 calls? Oh, I think I'm past that. Um, a lot of them are uh, hang-ups, though. Let me see. I'll tell you exactly how many calls I've had. While uh, you're pulling that up, I'll tell you, five weeks ago, I talked about this, Frank, when we were at Collective Genius, and I'm more excited about this now than I ever have been. Um, I, I've got these other wholesalers in my market and in several other markets, and I'm doing the marketing for them, and I'm having my VA pre-screen the leads. And all of the leads are going through Podio out to my wholesalers, and these are guys who already are wholesaling deals. I don't have to train them, don't have to motivate them. They already are good at talking to sellers, negotiating, sitting at the kitchen table. These guys, you know, I, I, I love working with them because they have the philosophy that I, I'm not leaving this house until I get a contract. And so I'm doing the marketing for these guys, pre-screening. Those are some good people to be in touch with for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so 
they're wholesaling the deal, <clears throat> and we're splitting the profits 50-50. Now you're thinking, 50-50, that's crazy. But literally, Alex, I'm not doing any of the work. My assistant sends the postcards. They set up Podio, which with Podio, you can manage your team like you can give them a workspace that's just for their area, and everybody can see it, and you can manage it from your iPhone or whatever. Then I have a VA who's pre-screening the, the voicemails, calling the sellers back, getting some information. The wholesaler is calling those sellers, meeting them, getting it sold, all that good stuff. And I literally do nothing except help set it up. And do they not up. know how to market for themselves? Well, a lot of these guys, they maybe they do, but they just don't want to. or they don't Are know. you doing postcard marketing or what? Postcards. That's it. That's it. Driving them to a 24-hour recorded voicemail. And my VA pre-screens the leads. So imagine if somebody came up to you, Frank or Alex, and says, hey, um, I will. what if I did all the marketing for you and I just gave you pre-screened leads that have, I've already asked the questions, they already, you know, they, they already, you already know they want to sell a property and it's in a good area that you like or whatever. If you took that lead, if I gave that lead to you, would, if you, if you sold it, would you split the profits with me 50-50? I'll pay for all of that marketing. Would it sounds say, like a decent deal if it's for marketing that you have not, if that person's not already doing that type of marketing. Right. And what, I, what I'm also starting to do now, <clears throat> since I have the assistants in place, I'm going to have my assistants send the follow-up letters and contracts. So what I'm doing right now is every seller that says no or is not motivated, no, I don't care how far apart we are in numbers, I want to send them a letter and a contract. So my, my wholesalers are putting down into Podio after the seller says no, you know, they'll update the lead. They'll put in there how much to offer them. And so we'll send a letter and a contract to follow up. And we'll, we'll put that in the wholesaler's name, but we have a special phone number attached to that letter that we can track those calls and they get put in through Podio. So, it's yeah, it's, we're, we're doing a lot. And the guys that we're working with, they love it because I'm giving them free leads. There's really nothing they, they have to risk. And I love it because I'm getting somebody else to do all that work for me. All right. So the amount of calls I've gotten so far, 257. Nice. Alex, is that high or low for you based on 10,000 pieces? Um, well, it's the second. Uh, we're in the middle of the second day. So let me see. What does that type of response come out to? It actually wasn't a true 10,000. I think it was like 9,400 after I split it down. So let's see, 258. 9,400. That's almost 3%, 2.7%, just like you uh, said there. In this market, where I'm at right now, I would say that's about average. Um, if I dropped that up in the Richmond area, I think it would be a lot higher. Yeah. it's a good response. Yeah. But a lot of them are people who are just calling in and then hanging up after they listen to the message. So I've got a virtual assistant working the top of the list and a virtual assistant working the bottom of the list. So the virtual assistant at the bottom list is calling all the leads that called in, you know, the oldest leads and calling them hangups and everything like that until they get to, uh, till they meet in the middle. So they're calling everybody and trying to maximize the list as much as we can. That's huge. We get through about 40 to 50 calls a day. How many are you guys hitting a day? That sounds about right. Well, with one assistant, I could get between 50 to 60 calls a day. With two, I can double that. Yep. 
My assistant, I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> he can handle <laughs> about 30 calls a day. Well, I, I mean, are you talking about leads or are you talking about calling and saying, hey, we realize you called us, give us a call back? I mean, that's uh, easy to do if you don't get, if you don't, if they don't pick up. Yeah, it's a blend of messages. Yeah. yeah. So we, we've got a debate in our office on what works better. Is it a recorded message? Is it a call center? Is it funneling your calls into your office? That's and the age old debate right there. Well, I can settle it. Okay. 24 hour recorded voicemail. You'll get two to three times the calls with that. Yeah, but they don't necessarily. It doesn't matter. You get a phone number. That's all you need. That's what you got. You make your money on the phone, right? Right. So 10,000 mail pieces in our market usually generates about 150 calls. And out of those 10,000 pieces, that's usually five deals. We usually net net about 15,000 a deal. So basically 10,000 mail pieces brings in about 75 grand. That's not bad. No, I think that's pretty good. How does that stack up against how you guys are seeing it? Uh, it depends. It really depends on you know what way the wind is blowing that month. I would say it's not a sure fire five or six deals. You gotta you gotta really you gotta really work it and squeeze it and and uh, try to massage the most you can out of it because a lot of people sometimes get the same postcard and a lot of people will be like, hey. I you're the you get you're the fifth postcard I got over the last couple months and we're ready to sell and I've got all my postcards here and I've got an appointment at nine and I've got an appointment at eleven and I got an appointment at two and an appointment at five. Which one do you want? <laughs> right. Well Frank, so, are you counting you counting rehabs? Or are those all wholesale deals, Frank? No, we we run we have three separate businesses. We have a a fix and flip business, we have a wholesale business, and then we have a, a buy and hold business where we own rentals. Mm-hmm. So those businesses are a little different. I mean, the reason I built this company the way that I did is I used to work for a a national builder. And the thought process was when a national builder, we didn't go belly up, but everybody had tough quarters. And I kind of saw that with a company with a billion bucks in the bank, you can choose to have one business. But if you're a small guy like us, you got to have a little bit, you have to have a little bit more security. So I had three different tentacles into the marketplace. And what we do is the... Rentals are a hedge against inflation, and basically, you know, I'm in my 30s. When I'm in my 50s, I should own a bunch of houses with no mortgages. The wholesale business is basically to have monthly cash flow and to cherry pick the best deals that we want to fix and flip. And in the fix and flips, you know, we used to say we didn't want to make less than 20 grand a deal, but that became a headache. So now it's if, it's, if we can't make at least 40 grand on a deal, I'm not going to touch it. Okay, cool. I just got a message from Alex that his headset is acting up. But, um, you know, let me introduce Frank Frank to you guys. Frank Cava. Uh, Frank, where are you from? Uh, I am living in central Virginia. Uh, we have an office in Charlottesville, and uh, we do a lot of our business in Richmond, but I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Awesome. So you're an SEC fan, right? Oh, yeah, man. I went to the University of Florida. No. God. All right. Well, that's all right. We won't hold that against you. I, and I guess you're a Miami Dolphins fan, aren't you, too? I grew up a Dolphin fan, yeah. Oh, because that was so funny at the last Mastermind we were at. You, Todd Toback was sharing a clip from the Jets. And uh, it was just like a, a, a freeze frame of, what was it, Dan Marino? Yeah, Dan Marino against the Jets with the clock play. The clock play. So go, <laughs> go to YouTube and just do a search for the clock play. Maybe add Dan Dorino, Dan Marino or something on there. 
Um, but just with that one screenshot, Frank knew immediately what play that was and what game it was. Uh, I thought that was hilarious. But, um, okay, so, Frank, you mentioned you're in your 30s. Um, I am. You've already got quite a successful business, um, which is awesome. Talk a little bit maybe about talk about how you got started in real estate and how you came about to, to get this business that you have right now. Sure. Thanks, Joe. Um, the way that I got into this business is my dad and my granddad are electricians, and I used to go to work with them when I was a little kid. And I always told my dad I was going to go work with him when I got out of high school. And he goes, uh-uh, you're going to college. So I've always had a love for construction and real estate, but I don't use my hands. I mean, I'm a terrible mechanic, but I'm pretty good with using a spreadsheet and using my brain. So I went to work for one of the nation's largest home builders out of college. And I started off at the bottom rung of the company and worked my way up. By the time I was 29, I was a vice president, and we were building and selling over 400 houses a year, almost $200 million each and every year. Wow. So in, in my time with them, um, we brought more than 3,000 houses out of the ground. We built and sold you know, two, 3,000 houses each. So my experience in real estate is into the billions for sure. And um, I, I've got three kind of facets of wh- where I, I'm pretty knowledgeable. I understand land development. I understand the, the sales side of the business. And I understand the construction business. In uh, 2009, I was just sick and tired of working for a big company and being told no all the time. And I'm someone who likes a challenge. So I said, if I can figure out a way to quit my job and survive in the housing abyss of 2009, I can figure out a way to make money in real estate in any market. So quit the business and started off with real estate. And over the last five years, we've been able to build a business that does fix and flip wholesale and has a rental portfolio as well. Nice. So what year did you leave the, um, the housing business? Uh, I started my business in 07 and I kind of did a deal here or there on the side. And then I quit full time in January of 2009. And were you in Florida at the time? No, I've been in Virginia. So in 2009, it was awful. I mean, it was a bad, it was a terrible real estate market. Okay. So how'd you get, how'd you figure out wholesaling and did it start with rehabbing? Cause you already knew how to, you already knew how construction and how it worked. It did. And, and the way that I used to wholesale, uh, I used to just wholesale through networking. Um, someone would bring us a deal and I would say, okay, I mean, this thing's worth, you know, a hundred grand if you put some money into it and we can get it for 30. So I make a couple of phone calls and just, you know, sell it for 40 or 50. So I used to do four to 10 wholesale deals a year and probably made, you know, a hundred grand or so. And I, and I focused a lot of my efforts on the fix and flip business. But in the last three years, I've become very diligent on postcards, uh, following up and uh, running a wholesale business. So that, that we do a lot more of that now. Now, um, I'm writing some notes here down. I know you're big on systems. Frank, and one thing I like about you is that you have, you, it seems like you've surrounded yourself with good people that can start implementing those systems. But it took you a while to get there. I mean, talk about the evolution of your business. You started off small. You're doing pretty well right now. And you started with like the worst of the economy, right? That's um, right. So talk about maybe the, the evolution of your business. How did you grow it? Sure. So the reason that I grew my business the way that I grew my business is because of this. In 2006, I was running a profit center with 75 employees. So if I'm good at managing a team or putting systems in place, because I used to have a team of 75 people. 
so that was in, I don't know, May, June of 2006. By January of 2009, less than three years later, my team was 23 people. And unfortunately, I've hired and groomed and taught people the business, but I had to fire a lot of people too. And that was awful. I, I hated those days. And it was usually mass days. We just laid off a ton of people at once. And it was dictated to me by the corporate office. And, you know, I had to do it. But when I started my business, I didn't want to have to fire people. So I grew very slowly. And I used, uh, I used temps. I used part-time people. I used subcontractors. And for the first two and a half years, it was completely just me. Two and a half years in, I actually hired a, uh, or I brought in a gentleman who's my business partner who runs our wholesale business and um, kind of gave him the ability to run that business. And we've grown slowly. Right now, we have five full-time employees, and um, we can sustain that because we have a, a model that works month after month after month, and we kind of grew slowly. So the philosophy, if you're looking to bring someone on, is my philosophy is this. When you have someone working and it's going to cost you about 75% of what a full-time hire is going to cost you, that's usually when I bring in somebody new. So if you're using a temp or you're using, if you're using a VA, you may never get to that number, but sometimes you need physical people in yeah. your office. So that's how, that's how we kind of did that. Through. Now you're, you're still doing some rehabbing, right? But I remember you've talked about before you kind of slowed that down a little bit. Why is that? Um, we slowed it down, but we've got 12 of them going on right now, Joe. So I don't know how slow that is. Um, <laughs> we, we used to have 20, we had 25 going on at one point. Wow, okay. Um, I slowed it down for two reasons. Number one, it's a cash intensive business. So you've got debt and you've got a ton of risk. So that's number one. Number two, wholesaling's easier. So I still love the fix and flip model, but I'm more selective. Uh, we did a deal about a year ago and um, my project manager looked at it. I've got a full-time project manager and he's like, we can make 40 grand on this house. And I looked at it and studied it real close. And I was like, it's made of wood. It was built before 1920. It's probably infested with the termites. It's probably a hassle. And there's a thousand things we're not going to be able to estimate. It's like, screw it. Let's just, let's just wholesale this thing. So we, we actually bought it, put it back on the market and uh, we listed it at 49.9. We got 41 offers in three days wow. and we, we ended up selling it for 101 grand. We made almost $30,000 and didn't touch it. <laughs> so I, I don't like to pound my chest and have too much pride. I take the path of least resistance that's going to give us the best result. And, and that's kind of how I run this entire business. Alex and I have talked about that a lot because um, when, when, you're in, when you're in a good position, you know, you can just cherry pick the best deals and rehab them yourself. But there's something to be said when you're rehabbing, there's so many moving parts and you're so reliant or dependent on the, the inspectors and permits and contractors. And then once you got it on the market, you have to find a buyer who's picky, who is going to um, ask you to fix a lot of things or change a lot of things. And then you have the underwriters you have to worry about as well. And then you have the realtors you have to work with, right? So if you've got a buyer who's getting a loan, there's just a lot of issues involved with that. You can make great money at it, but with wholesaling, you can you can either make a quick nickel or a slow dime, as they say, right? So with wholesaling, it's just a few moving parts, and you can make anywhere from a couple thousand to $50,000 wholesaling deals in a lot less effort. But there's still a place for that. There's still a place for rehabbing. And you're doing a dozen of them right now. I mean, 
what what's your kind of goal, Frank? How many do you want to have at one time? What's your sweet spot? I, I want to run three one million dollar plus businesses. So on the wholesale side of the the tracks, uh, if we're going to make a million bucks, we need to do about seven million dollars a year in revenue. So you know that's going to be. 20 to 30 houses, depending on the scope of those houses. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of what it looks like. I mean, if we can gross a million bucks, we can, we can make, you know, after we pay salaries and everybody else, there's, there's plenty of money left over. So that's kind of what we look like on the, on the fix and flip side of the business. Well, what do you see the market like right now? Do you feel like it's a strong market to continue rehabbing? Are you bullish on the future? I, I am, but I think you've got to do it with, um, You've got to be very mindful of what's going on in the marketplace. You need to know your personal risk tolerance. You got to know your skill sets. And if I know how to do this, I mean, I had 150, 200 houses under construction at any one time and know how to manage that team. So if you're kind of on your own and you're trying to pick your space and say, okay, where is my niche in this marketplace? you got to know what your risk tolerance is and you have to know what your cash position is. If you're paying hard money, do you have bank money and what you can weather in the marketplace? And that's, um, that, that's one of the most important things about getting into this market. Cause I don't have a crystal ball. I feel like the market is pretty strong right now. Inventory is still low. Um, Joe, we've done over a hundred fix and flips in the last four years and 90% of them have sold in less than 30 days. Wow. So we know how to market to the, we know the right ways to market and how to sell those properties very quickly. And so what I've noticed is in 2009, 2010, and all the way through today, if you price something to the market that's valuable and it gives people more value than they think they should get for their dollar, it's going to sell relatively fast. So I don't care if the market's going up or down. If you do it that way, uh, you're going to be able to move your inventory. Right. There will always be a demand for Mm -hmm. inventory and it may be, going down or maybe going up, but there'll always be demand for it. It's good. Alex, I don't know if you're back yet or not, but you can feel free to interrupt me anytime. Can you, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. It's working again. No, that's really cool. I'm listening to, uh, Frank and, uh, I mean, he's, he's done some big business. It sounds like, um, I mean, I'm definitely, as far as rehab and construction, nothing compared to, uh, haven't done anything compared to what he's done. Over his uh, business uh, time span, I mean, wow, a hundred some properties under construction. Now, was that you, or was that that major company that you were working? Personally, my business alone is fixed and flipped over a hundred deals in the past four and a half years. Um, but when I had over a hundred under construction at once, it's when I worked for the National Builder. Okay, okay, <laughs> it's like wow, that's uh, you, you're working some subdivisions at that point. <laughs> yeah. but that's uh, that's awesome. Actually, I have a question for you about uh, when you when you're on the flip side, so to speak, and you're selling a property. Do you look at the market and say, "Oh, this property sold for you know two thirty five. This one sold for two thirty five. This one sold for two two twenty five. It looks like I could get two thirty five for this, so I'm gonna go. I'm gonna attempt that. And then let's say you're not getting hits on that. When would you choose to reduce the price at that point? So your question is the most important question in the entire fix and flip process. And it's important to to figure out how much you think the house is going to sell for when you acquire the house. And then through construction, we check the value all the time. Right. Because the market is a living, breathing thing. Most houses are fixed and flipped inside of six months. 
Right. So, but we'll check it probably three or four times. What, what we do is we realize that when you put a house on the market, the most views, the most traffic, the most everything you're going to get is going to be in the beginning. That's right. So I work in central Virginia, which is Richmond to Charlottesville. And even in that, that swath of about 75 miles, and it's about 75 miles wide and about 20 miles um, tall. It's not, it's not a very huge market, but there's different sub-markets. So you need to know yeah. what market you're in and you need to play it the right way. To answer your question specifically, we've got a rural property that's been on the market almost 30 days. And we priced it at 130 It's the right place to be. And you just kind of got to sit there and let it go. We have another house that we got under contract last week. Joe, you'll love this deal. Bought this house for $190,000 off a direct mail piece. Um, we fixed it and flipped it while I was in San Diego with Joe. We bought, we bought it on May 1st. We ordered countertops. All the supplies literally showed up on May 1st. Um, on May 11th, it was back on the market. And on May 12th, we put it under contract for three twelve five hundred. Wow. It's going to be, it's going to be a seventy five $80,000 profit deal. On that house, Alex, the way that we priced that is we looked at the market and said, okay, the market here, it's Richmond. It's not over aggressive. It's not like suburban Los Angeles or, you know, one of these metropolitan places where people are going to put a ton of bids in. It's a pretty, it's a pretty conservative place. So we thought the market was probably 315 on the upper end. I was real happy with 312500 and I got a contract in 10 hours. So 10 hours. It, it, it depends on your market and what it is. In certain instances, I underpriced the market. I've done this model probably 10, 15 times in the past two years, where if I think something's really worth 300 and it's a hot market, I'll put it on the market for 275 and I'll get a ton of people that put bids in and it'll, it will gross it. So you might be able to list that house for 299 and it takes a month to sell, or you list it at 275, you get six contracts over a weekend and you get escalation that gets you like a 310 net. So it's going, right. to depend, it's going to depend on your market in a lot of instances and where you are. Right, right, absolutely. Well, that's cool. That's, uh, that's good insight. I don't know if you've seen uh, the markets around here. What, what we, a lot of us are doing is taking small little 700-square-foot houses and turning them into like 2,000-square-foot houses. We refer to that as doing a pop-top. Yeah. And uh, it seems like a lot of people are catching on with that. So they're really um, putting that out there a lot. There's a lot of uh, different houses like that that are out there now. So buyers have a lot to choose from uh, when it comes to that. So that's uh, that's been interesting to see how that's affected the market over the last, oh, I would say uh, four to six months uh, from that. No, Alex, how do you do that? Do you just build up or do you build out? Yeah, you do both. Uh, 700 square foot house, you might do a little addition off the uh, back as far as foundation is concerned. You're ripping all the walls down um, except for maybe one or two. And then you're building everything new from that point up. You might do a cantilever over the back. You know what a cantilever is, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, so basically you're building up and then going out with no <laughs> – it's hard to explain over the, over the, over the yeah. podcast. But you go up um, – trying to help people understand what that would be. You go up 
and then you make like a 90 degree out and then go up again type of thing. So you're, you're actually hanging a little over the ground technically, uh, so to speak, to pick up some ex- extra square footage that way. And is this easier from a permitting standpoint to do as well because you don't have to tear down and rebuild? Well, it's a, a little easier on the permit side than new construction because um, you're not going through the whole teardown process and getting all your cutoff letters for your utilities and your rodent inspection and your hazmat inspection and all these different inspections that you have to go through to, uh, to tear down. Interesting. So, yeah. I'm assuming these little 700 square foot homes, they got to be in good desirable neighborhoods. Are, are they close to the well, beach or? Well, the interesting thing is they're in Norfolk, most of them. And in Norfolk, the market is interesting because a lot of people, it might not be the best neighborhood per se, but a lot of people grew up in these neighborhoods, right? And are coming back to the neighborhoods and they like living in a house that's they're okay with the neighborhood because they grew up in it um and it's like new construction so okay you get a lot of military people that way too okay i've 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 only done two but i flipped two houses in norfolk and um we did we just renovated and the dollar per square foot that we got on the houses in norfolk that we flipped was less than the ones that people had knocked down to the ground and gone up I, I think the important thing here, guys, is to realize there's not one right answer. You got to look at your market. You got to really know your market and study it. And you need to look at what's going to give you the most pop. I'll give you an example of my market here, Alex. We've got, we're doing a modern house. I mean, this thing is cool as anything. It's going to be the coolest house we've ever built. It's got um, non galvanized um, metal on the front, corrugated metal, so it's going to rust. And it's got like these cool panels. And it, it would fit in very well in California. And the reason I'm doing it is it gets about another $25 per square foot than traditional construction. So when we looked at it, I was like, all right, so let's do the math here. We got a 2,000 square foot house. I might be able to sell for 50 grand more. Is it worth bringing in an architect for $7,000 to draw new plans? Mm. I, I think we can make another 30 to 40 grand on this house if we build, if, if we do this versus a center hall colonial. So we're doing it. So those are the things that you've got to really know and own your marketplace. And if you do, you don't have to do a thousand deals. You can do six deals a year and make 200 grand. You just got to know yes. your market and what makes the most sense. That's good. I saw something yesterday. Keller Williams is doing this like national conference call. Some dude sold 1,400 houses last year in 2000. <laughs> 1,400 houses. Guess how much his net receipts were in sales? 1,400 houses. You mean what, his, what he netted after all commissions? No. Like if you were going to say how many millions of dollars in sales he did for 1,400 houses? Well, I mean to start with, I'd use a medium of 250. That's uh, 3.5 million, right? He did – will be 35 million. He 35. Did, he did 5.3 million in sales. So if you divide that by 1,400, that's less than $4,000 a house. What? In commission, a, right. No, no, no. I'm just saying those, those were the, the dollars for the houses sold. He didn't make $5 million bucks. He sold $5 million worth of real estate. So a, real, his, a realtor, right? A realtor. So his average okay. house was sold for like four grand. So okay. he was probably like inner Detroit or something like that. But then there was another That's guy. a lot of transactions. There was another guy that did $13 million over 323 transactions. So yeah, as, I, as I pull back, I'd rather do 323 and make 13 than right. do 
two bajillion and make like nine bucks a house. So <laughs> exactly. what, what I would look at in your business is you get to steer the ship. You're your own boss. Pick the places where you can get the most impact in your business. And that's what Alex and I are both talking about here is where can you maximize the dollar for your effort? That's good. And for me right now, that's leveraging other wholesalers. Yeah, you're a master at it, Joe. It's unbelievable. He's the leverage man. <laughs> but, they're, they're, you know, I just would rather be on vacation with my family in the in Yellowstone. Uh, but some people, and the, by the way, we're going there in a month for three months. We're going to be gone for three months in our RV. I'm That's looking forward to it. But um, you're absolutely right, Frank. you got to know your market. And you got if you're going to be doing this in other markets, you've got to be working with people that you trust that know those markets as well, for sure. I want to talk, Frank, about raising hard money. Yeah. Uh, but I'd first like to ask you about your, your some of your favorite ways to get seller leads right now. What are you finding that's working well? What kind of postcards do you – how are you doing that right now? We get our leads through a couple of pretty easy channels. Uh, we send out just a standard postcard that says, hey, we want to buy your house. It's got a couple of paragraphs that talks about what we do and the fact that you know we'll pay cash, we can close fast. And it's, it's, it's more or less hassle-free. Um, and then I've got an inside call person that just literally just beats the phone. We've got an answer center. And then Kyle goes and physically meets people. And yesterday he met with somebody. He was their seventh appointment. And he called me afterwards. He's like, I just closed them. I'm like, I was like, how would you close them? And what we really focus on, Joe, we have a sales meeting once a week. And then we do kind of a huddle almost daily where we just talk about how to problem solve and close deals. And um, – Kyle did what any good salesperson does. You got God blessed you with two ears and one mouth. <laughs> shut your mouth and open your ears. Listen and find out what's important to those people and solve their needs. Mm -hmm. That's what he did, and that's what closed the deal. He was also the last guy in there. That's helpful too. <laughs> but if you're the last in or the first in, it's all about listening to what those people's needs are and solving those problems. And, right. and, if, and if you're, if, I mean, tell me if you think I'm wrong here, Alex. But if if you do that you're going to get the deal more than the people who don't. Yes. If you listen to the people, definitely. I mean, you yeah. got to solve what they, you got to solve what they need. That's but a right. lot of people will come in and say, thank you for being such a good listener, but uh, I've got six other people I'm going to meet with and then I'll call you back. <laughs> so it's always good to be the last one sometimes in that instance. <laughs> so you could be the last one to say, here, you got all these bids right here. Uh, this is what you're looking for. This is your reality is set now that you've got all these bids. So you can see what you really can get from this. Let's uh, make a deal today. What's it going to take kind of thing? Well, it's, it's having that attitude. I'm not leaving this house until I get a contract. Yeah. On the first shot, that's difficult though. Cause how do you overcome? I've got six other appointments. Well, uh, that might be another podcast, <laughs> but you, you got to have the right people doing that. And yes. It's important to get them trained or find somebody who's already good at that. I, you know, it's his real skill. If, if I were to hire another acquisitions manager, I would probably go to a, a used car dealership. Or and, a timeshare place. Well, I, would, uh, I would try to hire some of those guys at the used cars salesmen. Um, I'd go to the biggest used car lot I could find and, and, and try, to, try to hire somebody from them. But anyway, Frank... Let's talk about hard money because obviously if you're going to be buying these deals, and a lot of times if you're wholesaling them, right, you need cash to close on them because sometimes you can make more money if you if you buy it 
maybe take the carpet out, take the stink out a little bit, and put it on the MLS, right? So money is an important part of this. What do you recommend to people who are thinking about that kind of a, a topic? In, in our business, I like to have cash available, and, and we've got cash kind of available in three ways. Number one is I invested my own money in this business, and you know that got us pretty far, but I went to a bank second, but banks, bank money is cheap. Like right now, I get bank money for 5.5%, which That's is great. very, very inexpensive. But if you're going to borrow bank money, you've got to have – you've got to be bankable. You've got to sh- – you got to show tax returns. You've got to actually have money, and you're going to need to put some money into into houses. So, um, but we use bank money. We use our our own personal funds. And then the other thing we started to do a couple of years ago is we started reaching out to folks who are just private investors. So we get loans from people between eight and twelve percent interest. And the upside is is I can call. I it's funny. One of my hard money guys called me yesterday and said, "Hey Frank, I got an extra three million bucks." When do you want to start investing it? And if you do a really good job at this, money starts to fall out of the sky. I mean, it's going to take me a while to invest three million bucks. So the the most important thing is to know what you're doing and be able to speak in a way that makes people feel very comfortable that if they're going to put their money in you, you are going to be able to not only return their money, but give them a nice return. So You've heard me for the past 40 minutes or so kind of talking. I know my business. I own my business. I know my numbers. I know that stuff. And I never miss an opportunity to tell people what it is that I do. And I make sure I hit on a couple of really important topics. I talk about my experience. I talk about what it is that I do. And I talk about, I, I kind of ground it and make it so people know, I, you know, I sometimes reference the fact that, you know, you ever seen one of those shows on TV where people buy, sell and flip houses? Mm-hmm. Well, we do that because everyone wants to do that and people get excited about it. I mean, if you turn on any one of the TV shows at nine o'clock at night, you can find, you know, six of them at any given time, depending on the network. So people are into that stuff. It's hot right now. So you say things trigger. And then what I use is I really establish value, trust and need. And I I, kind of tell them about the fact that we add value to houses um, I talk about my track record, the hundred plus deals that I've done in the last four years, plus the three thousand I did when I worked for a, comp- uh, a publicly traded company, and then I always make sure I kind of seed it with. We're always looking for good investors. Do you happen to know anybody that might want an opportunity to invest? And you can say this to one of your uncles at a theme park, which actually happened. We were having ice cream. My nephew was on a ride, and uh, he looked at me and goes, "All right, so when can I write you a check?" Nice. And um, so those are the kind of things. It's always be on your game because you never know when it's going to turn around and help you. And it's the most – it's surprising too the kind of people that <laughs> that you find that do have a ton of money and you had no idea. They don't dress the part. They don't have really nice cars. Um, they drive minivans. And, 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 then, and then they find out what you're doing. And, yeah, you know, I got, got $500,000. I got a million dollars. I'd like to – Lend on one of those deals, but I like that. So you tied right into the elevator speech. So when when you say you're raising hard money, you're not talking about going to a hard money lender, right? You're talking about private money from private investors, right? I still call it hard money, Joe, but I okay. the guys that are out there like looking for you are going to charge you like two to six points interest, two to six points, and they're going to charge you between like twelve and sixteen percent interest. Oh. 
I'm good at this and it's hard to make money if you're paying those kind of loan shark rates. I'd rather find somebody that's got 750 grand in an IRA and would like to make 12% and doesn't need points. Do you hear so, that, Alex? You're a loan shark. I'm a loan shark. <laughs> but that's exactly what I do. I've got a I lender that I pay 12% um, and no points. Yeah. And I don't make payments until it yeah. sells. You do it all at the end. Yep. Yeah, and that, that's that's what payments I payments accrued. Yeah, man, and it, it's an easier process. So if you're new to this game, you're going to have a little bit less leverage. Mm-hmm. So if you're new to the game, what you really need to know is number one, you need to know what you're doing or have a good solid team. And this is what I teach people. I've literally flipped houses that are 300 miles away that I've never stepped foot in because I have the right people doing the right jobs. But if you've got the right team in place, which usually encompasses a project manager or a construction crew and a good solid realtor that can pull you comps in the beginning and kind of get you to the to the sales price at the end. If you can articulate that, even if you have little experience, you can get people to get involved in this and give you money at a rate where you can make really nice returns for not only yourself, but for them as well. Well, and if you had to borrow money from a hard money lender and pay those points, you just factor that into your acquisition cost, right? It it shrinks the market, though, Joe, because there's so many people doing this now. If you've got to give up four points on a $200,000 house, that's eight grand. That means your acquisition price has got to be $8,000 lower. So it makes it a little bit harder for you. So true, you can find that money, but it's it's. It's not only just finding the money, it's finding the deal and being able to make sure that deal is going to be profitable. And if you can, it's not how much you make, it's how much you keep. And, and that's, that's, a really, that's a really big part of the process. I like that a lot. And it's, it's asking the question, instead of asking the question, how much money can I make? We've, we, we talked about this at the mastermind. How much is it going to cost me? Right. When you're, when you're looking at a deal, when you're looking at an opportunity, you need to ask yourself that question. How much is this going to cost me? You'll get a much different answer. Um, you know, when you were talking about the elevator speech that you kind of give, reminded me of a guy I know. He's raised money uh, from several different private investors uh, this way. When he's at it, he'll go to a, a Starbucks or a coffee shop in a wealthier neighborhood and um, will intentionally start doing business calls with other investors and other partners in his business while he's there at the coffee shop. And um, he, he will actually talk intentionally about good deals and how much his investors are making um, and talking loud so other people in the coffee shop can hear him. And I kid you not, he's gotten at least three or four private lenders with, with good sums of money just by doing that. People will walk up to him as they're leaving and give them his business card and say, hey, please call me, you know. But what what you're talking about is you're not you're not asking people for money, Frank. Right? You're telling them about the success you're having, and the you uh, you, you you're kind of just opening the door for them to just step right in if they're ready. That's it. It's 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 a slightly different tactic than your friend that's you know kind of right. becoming town crier. But it's not really that different. He's talking about his business, and he's hoping people are going to overhear him. I talk about my business and I just, I try and intrigue people. And if they have an interest, they're going to let you know. The other thing that happens is I know you're a big, you, you kind of leverage other people's time and money and you're really good at kind of part people and helping them maximize on deals. 
I don't go to the RIAs as much as I used to, but people come to me whenever I invariably speak at, you know, a couple of them a year and people, you know, there's usually a couple of people that really want to spend time with you. And there was this lady that would call me and ask me questions and everything like that. So I was like, I go to Richmond every Wednesday, pick a Wednesday. I'll pick you up at the coffee shop. I'll drive you to Richmond. You can pick my brain for the entire day, but I'm going to be conducting business when I'm not in the car. So if you want to just tag along, come on. So she jumped in the car with me, and by the end of the day, she put me in touch with a hard money lender that has lent me over four million bucks in the past eighteen months. Wow! I kind of talked to her, found out what her best value was, and I told her, "I'm like, look, you're not a wholesaler, you're not a flipper, you're a great networker. Wow. Why don't you connect me with somebody that has money?" And she's like, "Okay." And she, you know, I pay her a small finder's fee on every deal. And at the same time, it's given me the opportunity to grow my business with rates that make a lot of sense. Nice. So bottom line, the money's there. If you've got a good deal and if you've got the experience and you know how to network, the money's there. You don't have to, money's the least of your problems, really, if you're good at finding deals. The other, the other thing with raising money is if you need to raise money, you need to make it an actionable item. We're all talking about how we go and find wholesale deals. We send mail pieces. We have a team. We do this. Um, Alex was talking a little bit about, you know, managing his projects and going to see, seeing that, spending some of his valuable time during his day overlooking projects. If you need cash, you've got to have that on your daily to-do list of find money. And you can do it kind of passively like I do it because I don't need to be aggressive with it right now. Or you need to know that, hey, I need to grow this business. I need to find some cash. And you need to make that an actionable item. You need to get yourself in front of the right people where you can find that money. Because it's not it, it won't just fall in your lap. Once you have a bunch of it, then it falls in your lap. But at first you've got to take some you gotta take some steps. And and some of those steps you we had talked before this podcast, Frank, you're you're willing to give away a, a free giveaway, something like an elevator speech outline or kind of a map on how you could create your own unique elevator pitch. Is that right? Yeah, I'd be happy to do it. And if you want, I can do it right now. Yeah, okay, go ahead. All right. So my elevator speech, I didn't really deliver it to you, but you got the gist of it from what we were talking about. I kind of talk about my experience, the success rate that we've had, and I, I do a couple of things. I, I talk about value. I talk about building trust, and I, I articulate a need for money. And I do it with my level of experience and with my story. So your story or anybody's story is going to be different because we all have unique paths and journeys. So what you need to do more than anything is just kind of have a framework and a structure. So what I've done is I've used my experience and given people the opportunity to kind of leverage it and have, you know, a good deliverable that you can customize that fits you. But it goes something like this, and I call this the customized elevator speech in 37 seconds or less. And here it is. Have you ever seen the TV shows where investors buy houses, fix them up, and then sell them for enormous profits? Well, I do this, but I follow a very specific set of guidelines and parameters that make those guys look, they're, look like they're from the Wild West. I follow a proprietary system that allows me to find properties that are priced under market, add value quickly, and then sell them, making a quick and tidy profit. With one eye focused towards profit and the other focused on capital preservation, I entered the market of buying existing homes, fixing them, adding value, and then flipping them quickly for fast profits. 
We have a few select investors that we closely work with, and they are generating nice profits with consistent returns. The challenge is we need more investors that meet our criteria to do business with. I'm pretty strict because the system I follow works and has sold more than 100 properties in the past four years, with 90% of these deals selling in less than 30 days. I have the experience, track record, and strategy and just need another person that has some extra money to invest and make a big return on investment. Do you know anyone who'd be interested? Nice. Clap, 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 clap. I'm applauding. That's really good. <laughs> that is good. That's really good. And uh, the that's that's the whole push versus pull thing, right? You're not pushing that down anybody's throat. You're pulling them into your world. And you're talking about capital preservation. You know, the key word there, protecting capital, right? And fantastic returns. And people are thinking... The whole time you're talking about that is how can I get involved with that, right? That's really right. good. Frank, we're, we're getting close to our time that uh, we, we're done here. I sure appreciate your time. Any closing thoughts or anything else you want to say about this, this whole topic of finding money and rehabbing? Or? The, the only thing I'll tell you is this, is borrowing money is usually something that is going to start with your concentric circle. So you're usually going to start with friends and family. So if you're going to do the fix and flip game, if you don't have a lot of experience, find someone that can help you with that process, because the last thing you want to do is jeopardize an important relationship by borrowing money and not being able to return it. But using the strategies that I talk about, if you're mindful and you are very, very intently desiring paying that person back with the um, parameters that you set forth, this system works. It works well, and it's beneficial for everybody involved. But you've got, you've got to make sure that if, if you don't have a ton of experience, you find someone that can walk you through the process so you don't make a lot of mistakes. Well, and Frank, you do some coaching yourself. But this is something we've talked about in the past. You're just kind of starting to do this. Um, I'm excited about that for you. Um, you just bring so much experience to the table. Um, are you, you have a website for that or any place that people can get a hold of you? Yeah, there's two places, Joe. Thanks for asking. The first is frankcavacoaching.com. It's uh, my last name is spelled C A V is in Victor A. And the other one is experiencedinvestor.com and uh, experience is just an X. experiencedinvestor.com. Okay, we'll put those in the show notes. But again, just to repeat, it's Frank Cava C A V A coaching.com and experiencedinvestor.com. And there's just an X for at the uh, experienced part. Cool, Alex. Do you have anything uh, final comments you want to you want to add to this? Money is definitely uh, private. Money is definitely something in your concentric circles, like you said, that starts with people that are close to you. You treat them right and treat their money more important than your own, then you'll do fine. Uh, and you have to have that attitude. You you have to have the attitude that. Even if I lose money on this deal, I'm still going to make sure that my lender gets their money. Um, or if, if you know the crap was supposed to hit, the, is going to hit the fan, I'm going to do my best to protect them more than uh, even myself. And that's hey, the attitude that I have. Amen, brother. That is the, those are fantastic words of advice. Not good luck with that. Let me know how that goes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you got to make sure they get paid first. Absolutely. Well, hey, th Frank, thanks so much for your time. Sure, sure appreciate it. And um, I look forward to seeing you. I think the next our next Mastermind's in uh, Tampa in September, I think. Yeah. Is that right? 
I think, yep. Maybe I can twist Alex's arm to come. Yeah, I don't know, actually, we're full, Alex. You, you may not, uh, we do have a waiting list. I don't know if you can get in even if you wanted to. Oh, no. <laughs> That's what you call the scarcity clothes, boys and girls. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true, too. It's true. And I was just talking to Jason, the guy who leads the mastermind the other day, and he was thinking about creating a third group. And I, I think I talked him out of it. Um, really? Yeah. I think he needs to keep it at two and just raise the prices for new members. Oh, boy. <laughs> so you have, if you call Jason by the end of the day, you might, have, you might get the old pricing. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. No, but he is, he is going to be raising the pricing. So anyway, it's always been fun. Alex, thank you, Frank. We'll see you guys. Go, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com to get the show notes of this call. Um, we'll put Frank's websites on the show notes there, frankkavacoaching.com or experienced with an X, experiencedinvestor.com. And uh, thanks, guys. We'll talk to you all later. Take care. Bye, guys.